All right, for our scripture reading today, uh, please turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and we'll read through verse 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for, your, for this word, your word. You inspired it, you've preserved it, and you've brought it down from generation to generation such that we can have it here in our own language and in an abundant supply. I thank you for our ability to meet and worship here together without fear of prosecution and persecution. We can meet and worship together and pray together and study your word together. Father, as we camp out in these verses from Matthew for the next uh, 15, 20 minutes or so, I just pray that you would give us understanding, um, a literal understanding for certain of the words, but also a spiritual understanding and a softness of our heart to uh, understand the better application of this uh, as we can be a better reflection of your glory. And Father, I just pray that you would give us the forgiveness we need in the areas where we need it. Finally, Lord, I just ask you to use me, a broken vessel. Protect me from error, and uh, please use me as your delivery mechanism, your, your deliverer for the food and water that you have through these words to these faithful saints. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we spend time uh, in this scripture today, I, I hope to give you a little context from my own personal life that led up to today's sermon. And as you can imagine in my house, the spring and early summer were filled with many, many discussions and Bible studies about evangelism and missions uh, as the kids prepared to leave. Um, and during the lead-up to the kids' missions trips, we went through a family Bible study, one on evangelism, and then a subsequent study on short-term missions. And as we went through these studies, a sermon started to form in my heart, uh, mostly out of my own learnings and my own convictions from the, the words that we were reading. And as Session was making plans in the early summer for uh, pulpit supply for the summer, I excitedly grabbed this opportunity to, to share this message with you, and it totally warmed and reinforced my heart when Mario also gave an evangelism-focused message. Uh, so this is kind of part two of that sermon series, uh, and, and I really hope that uh, it brings as much comfort and conviction to you as, as it has to me. Uh, they say that the best sermons are the ones you preach to yourself, and I really think that this idiom is completely true this morning. 
Our passage today is pulled out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Certainly, it is the most beloved, the most read, the most uh, studied, and the most preached passage of certainly of any sermon of all time and probably the most preached passage in the Bible uh, of all time. Uh, I had no shortage of podcasts to listen to in my preparation, uh, which also was a great comfort in preparing the message today. The beginning of the sermon, uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are a list of blessings bestowed upon a person that demonstrates a virtue. The blessing, the virtue, the blessing, the virtue, the blessing, the virtue, as Jesus marches through the Beatitudes. And, and then you get to verse 11. And while it still kind of sounds like a Beatitude, it starts the, with the word blessed, it stands apart and is clearly different from the other Beatitudes. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. They utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, This double-edged blessing is a transition point in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see in a minute why Jesus is making this transition. Uh, But suffice to say that there are many, many obstacles that prevent us from sharing our faith in the dark world. Satan does not care which of these obstacles trip us up, as long as one of them works to trip us up today. Verses 11 and 12 promise two things. There's a promise of a great reward, and there's a promise of persecution. These promises are the context under which we come into today's passage of uh, 13 through 16. Right on the heels of these two promises of persecution and reward, Jesus commands us to be the salt and the light. Today, we're going to look at three points, particularly about being the light of the world. And if you're taking notes, these will serve as our outline. First, we will look at who is the light. Second, we will look at where we shine the light. And finally, we will learn why the light shines. In verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 13, yeah, first, sorry, verse 15, who is the light of the world? Is it us, really? Uh, I'm going to cover a lot of proof text passages here for a minute. You're free to, to flip through them uh, or jot them down or, or just listen. This first one's a little long, the rest will be shorter. But if you look at John chapter 1, 1 through 6, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness 
to bear witness to the light about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Um, I read that, and I wonder if John was even present for the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the the context would say he was there, uh, but these verses say the exact opposite of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. John says explicitly that he, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John records for us one of Jesus' great I am statements. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Fast forward into 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. There are several Old, Testaments, Old Testament references to God the Messiah being the light. I chose only one for today. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That came from Psalm 27.1. I could give many more examples, uh, but for the sake of time, I'm going to just say that the overwhelming weight of Scripture in the New Testament and in the Old, Jesus is the light. So then how do we make sense of Jesus' words in Matthew 5? And does other Scripture corroborate the teaching, or is it something that we need to just really examine how we, we balance it? If you look at Luke's teaching, if you look at Luke's teaching in Acts 13:47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Acts 22, 23, 25, 22, and 23, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And Luke also included in his account of the gospel a refrain of Sermon on the Mount in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 16, after lighting a lamp, no one covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that all who enter may see the light. Now, I don't know if you're keeping score, but that's three proof texts from John, three proof texts from Luke that all say opposite things. I don't know. I don't know what to read into that. Maybe they had a rivalry going. I don't know. But regardless, it is clear that yes and yes, yes, Jesus is the light, and yes, we are the light. One of the very popular sermon illustrations for this passage is cave darkness. And uh, if you have never been in a cave and never experienced complete and utter blackness, it is a freaky experience. You go into a cave, the tour guide turns off all the lights, and you can't see anything. You can't see yourself even touch your own eye with your finger. It is completely black. There is an amusement park in Missouri that boasts, as one of its attractions, Marvel Cave. And it is said that in the early 1900s, when people were exploring this cave, they were given two candles. 
and you carried these two candles with you in the cave, and if one of them blew out, you would light the candle, your candle, with the other one that, had, that was still alit. And if other people were in your party, sometimes they would go with only one candle to have a, a one hand free for navigation, but if your light blew out, you had to go relight it from one of the other candles. And if by chance both of your candles blew out or everyone in your party lost their candle all at once, you were in a very perilous situation. Moving about the cave would have been, you would have tripped, you would have bumped, you could have hit your head, you could have fallen in a pit. Uh, Most certainly if you moved any distance at all, you would not have been able to keep your bearings and would have been lost in the cave. So if the light was completely extinguished... The visitors were told to just sit down and wait. So imagine that you're exploring the cave, your candles blow out, and you're sitting on a cold, wet, dark, hard rock for about 12 or 16 hours waiting for the next group of visitors or the steward of the cave to come find you and relight your candle so that you can go home. And you're sitting in this overwhelming, oppressive darkness. You're sitting in total discomfort, and you start to see that glimmer. Your your eyes just barely pick up the very, very presence of light, and you start to see it coming towards you. Do you think that that person's going to turn to their buddy next to them and say, You know that light is actually the combustion of beeswax letting off photons so that we can see? Absolutely not. They would have been so excited to see the light. I think that in that moment, there would have been no difference and no distinguishment from the candle itself and the person carrying the candle. This is the context that we need to understand Matthew chapter 5. Yes, Jesus is the light of the world, and yes, we are the light of the world with him. But we are the light of the world only in as much as we are a reflection of the true light with a capital L that lives within us. And let us not also forget that in this dark and sin-sick world, there are people that are sitting on a cold, wet hard rock in complete and total darkness. And from their perspective, when you come carrying that candle, they're probably not going to ask if it's an oil lantern or a beeswax candle. They are going to be so overwhelmed by the light that that is going to be the focus. So this brings us to our second point. Where do we cast the light? Scripture rhetorically asks us whether we would light a lamp and then hide it under a basket. Well, that, of course, would be foolish, especially in a culture where artificial light was precious. But even in this rhetorical question, we find the insight as to where to shine our light. And at the risk of being Mr. Obvious, you shine the light into the darkness We live in a sin-sick and fallen world, and we are surrounded by darkness everywhere. 
Certainly, in the heart of the saints and in the heart of our, our community here, we do need to help illuminate the areas of encouragement and repentance that are in our own hearts. We need to bring each other to Jesus. We need to speak gospel and truth into each other's life. But if we spend all of our days shining a bright light into the dark-ish corners of hearts that are already illuminated by the gospel, we are completely missing the point of Matthew chapter 5. The genesis of this sermon came from a time of self-reflection in my own heart. And if you look at my life, um, I work from a home office. I spend a handful of minutes every week on video conference with my colleagues. Uh, in fact, I've only been face-to-face -face with a colleague for about 90 minutes in the last year and a half. It's the only time I've been person-to-person -person with anyone that I work with. Outside of work, uh, I'm, a, I'm an elder here at the Granville Chapel, and certainly there is all kinds of opportunities that I just cherish and love to shepherd uh, and work alongside my fellow session, uh, my fellow brothers here inside the church. Uh, I teach high school science to homeschoolers, and uh, I lead a trail life, uh, lead a tr my boys' trail life troop. And, and in both of those, uh, I don't want to diminish the importance of teaching and raising up the next generation of adult leaders and uh, coming alongside preteens and teens in their education and in their character development. Uh, but at the same time, weeks can go by when I don't have a single meaningful conversation with an unbeliever. This has bothered me greatly and the Lord convicted me of this this spring. And I've prayed many times that God would give me opportunities to cast my light into the darkness. I was on a fishing trip with our Trail Life troop, and there was a specific fishing spot that I really, really wanted to try. So I was navigating my kayak quite aggressively to get to this fishing spot. It was going to be my first spot of the day. And as I'm paddling, I hear a voice call out from the bank, probably 100 yards away, whoa, you look like you're in a hurry. And my initial thought was, yeah, and stopping to talk to you is not going to get me there. Uh, thankfully, we, we serve a gracious God that forgives us as he gently reminded me of my prayers to be conscious of these divine appointments to share the gospel. So I navigated my kayak over to the shore, and I kind of held onto a rock, and I talked with this man for 15 or 20 minutes. All the while, these, these prayers were in the forefront of my mind as I looked to steer the conversation. Uh, you want to know something funny? The man was already a believer, and we are brothers in Christ. I don't know what to make of this anecdote, uh, but I can stand here with complete transparency, and I can tell you that this is a continual point of prayer in my life, and I cannot say for certain that my light is center-mounted in the middle of a dark room. In fact, it's more likely to say that my light is obscured by the safety and comfort of church-focused activities. Um, I actually mean hidden 
under a bushel basket. So why do we shine our light? In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I'm a good reformer. So if you ask me the ultimate motivation for any of our actions, my answer is going to be easy and reflexive. Sola de gloria. I almost said it before you finished the question. To God alone be the glory. Is it, sim- is it this simple? Yes, it is, but no, it's not. It is true that why do we shine our light? We shine our light so that God can be glorified. God could have chosen any possible means to take the gospel from one generation of the church to the next generation of the church, but he chose you. If you have faith in Jesus and you are a believer, it is your calling to faithfully transfer the faith from this generation of believers to the next generation of believers. It absolutely blows my mind to think that God chose to use fallen, broken, and imperfect people to be the light to the next group of believers. Why would he do such a thing? Because it brings glory to him. When God's light penetrates the darkness and the redemptive power of the gospel converts a sinner to repentance, when that heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh, God is glorified, angels rejoice, and a party breaks out in heaven. Our local society today is in a very unfamiliar and a very uncomfortable place. At least it's uncomfortable for me. As we return to our office place, or not, as we re-engage and find that we don't really know our neighbors so well anymore, or the people that we haven't talked to in a while seem to be a little distant from us. There are many things that used to be the same that aren't the same, and they've changed. Have they changed forever? Is this the new normal? What if I'm the one that changed? I will say one thing for certain, though, is we live in a culture with far more division and far less grace than I have experienced since I can remember in my teenage years. We feel the weight of brokenness, and we are called to carry the only solution to this brokenness. These verses are so rich. There is so much to unpack from, these, from this text But as we draw to a close, I want to challenge you to do two things this week. First, I want want you to be deliberate about sharing the gospel. Pray about the darkness to which the light needs to be illuminated. Some of you may be in the congregation today and you may not associate with my experience at all. You might be living in life circumstances where the constant oppression of darkness is overwhelming It might even be creeping and overwhelming you in your own home. My heart goes out to you, and it is good that you are here with believers 
for encouragement and for worship and for prayer. Prayerfully consider the ministry opportunities that God has for you and faithfully act on the appointments that are given. Second, give glory to God for His works. Remember that your debt that has been erased and remember that the very wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in your place so that you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. God has chosen you to carry this message to the next generation of the church, and to God alone be the glory for this. We're going to move in just a second to our affirmation of faith, and we're going to read today the Heidelberg Catechism question number two. Heidelberg question number one is, is relatively frequent in our affirmation of faith. It's probably pretty familiar to you. What is our only comfort in life and in death? Well, I'm going to summarize. Forgive me for not quoting word for word. Um, Our only comfort in this life is that we belong body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He fully paid for all of our sins with His blood, and we have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over us so closely that not even a hair can fall from our head without His will, and He has orchestrated everything for our good and for our salvation. Because we belong to Him in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit assures us of our eternal life and makes us willing and ready from now on to live for Him.